If, if you would, take your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 137. You, you, you might read through Psalm 137 and find that this is not exactly the most uplifting of psalms, but I, I think we'll find encouragement for our soul here before our time together is done. Psalm 137 is a psalm of lament. It might also be referred to as an imprecatory psalm, which are those psalms where the psalmist prays that bad things happen to people who have mistreated him or God's people in general. Um, it's worth noting that there are a lot more praise psalms than there are imprecatory psalms. And I would caution you against over-utilizing the imprecatory psalms in your own prayer life. It, it, it is a much more pressing matter that we praise God in our prayers or our songs uh, than it is that we uh, ask that he would curse those that we regard as our enemies. But in any case, the psalmist is writing from exile or from sometime after the exile, remembering their experiences in Babylon and lamenting those experiences. The sense of desperation and even depression that was felt there in the land of Babylon. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, uh, the narrative of Israel's experience goes something like this. Settled into the promised land, uh, the people of God were initially ruled over by a combination of judges and prophets. And eventually they asked that they could have a king like the other nations. They got Saul. And they, they, they got what they bargained for, the opportunity to be like other nations. Uh, ruled uh, by the authority of man rather than the authority of God. Things didn't go so well with Saul, but God graciously gave them David. And for a period of about 80 years, the people of God enjoyed incredible fruitfulness and prosperity. Under the reign of both David and his son Solomon, things went largely well. And then the nation divided under Solomon's son Rehoboam, and Israel was separated from Judah, ten tribes in the north, and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And Israel and its ten tribes were always bent on evil, they were very quickly carried away into captivity by the Assyrians and for all intents and purposes ceased to be a people. They were dispersed tribes, scarcely identifiable. But the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, what remained of the tribe of Judah and of Benjamin remained in the south. That is, until they followed the course of their brothers to the north and persisted in their idolatry and their disobedience. And in the 6th century, God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon to serve as his sword of judgment against them. They swept into the city of Jerusalem, and they tore down the temple, carried away the temple utensils and all of uh, those uh, parts of the temple uh, ceremonial process, carried them away into captivity in Babylon, and many of the people too. And so for 70 years, the people of God lived in a foreign land, in a strange place, in a pagan environment. They were separated from the land of promise, from the land of the covenant, from the land that flowed with milk and honey. It is the low water point in the history of Israel. In fact, 
uh, from the very beginning of the Bible, in Deuteronomy 28, when God warns them of what will happen in, in, the, in the worst cases of disobedience, the worst thing that can happen to Israel is to be exiled from the promised land, and that's precisely what they experience. And so from that experience, the psalmist writes, or at least reflecting on that experience, the words of Psalm 137. Join me there in verse 1 in reading. The psalmist says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, there we hung up our lyres or our harps on the poplar trees. For our captors there ask us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Verse 4 asks, How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soul? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it, destroy it, down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. See, I told you it was severe. I don't, I don't know. We, you know, we talked last week about the similarities between Israel's experience in the Exodus and where we are as followers of Christ, but I don't know that we always think about the similarities that exist between Israel in their exile experience and our experience as followers of Christ. The people of Israel are citizens of the land of Israel but they find themselves in exile temporarily, residents of a strange and ungodly land. They know and are known by God, but they live in a pluralistic society where idolatry rules the day. They're called to live according to the standard of God, yet they live in an environment that is not conducive to faithfulness to God, nor is faithfulness to God tolerated well, in the Babylonian culture. They live in a land that despises their presence and persecutes their people. Yet God has charged them while they're in Babylon to pursue the peace and the prosperity of the land. Now, if you think about it in these terms, this is who we are. Pilgrims and strangers in a land that is ultimately not our own. We talked on Sunday morning and we even talked on last Wednesday night about the fact that our primary citizenship is really not in America. It is in heaven, under the kingship of Jesus. We are pilgrims and strangers in a foreign land, in, in an environment that is not conducive to godliness. Have you experienced that? It's much easier in this land to be ungodly than it is to be godly. It's difficult to bear the standard of God in the crooked and perverse generation that God has assigned to us. And yet at the same time, God has charged us with pursuing the peace and the prosperity of the strange land that God has made our temporary residence. There's a tremendous amount of similarity between where we are in the present and where Israel finds themselves in Psalm 137. God has very graciously given us in the Israelite experience 
an earthly example of the spiritual reality that we find ourselves in even in the here and now. Israel bemoaning the existence of its enemy and the oppression that it's experienced, the persecution and the hardship that has been against them. That's where the most notable difference between Israel's experience and ours exists. We may be pilgrims and exiles in a strange and foreign land, but it is not a realistic army or a flesh-and-blood enemy that has opposed us or persecuted at the end of the day. Paul tells us in the New Testament that our war is, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air. Nevertheless, our enemy is active. He is strategic. He is at work in opposition to God and the people of God at every turn. So we can sort of bear witness to the existence of this ever-present enemy in a strange and foreign land. And so maybe the moans of the Israelite people will read a little more personally to you tonight than they might have otherwise. There are several things that we can observe about our enemy from Psalm 137. First of all, you'll note in verse 1 that there is an effort on the part of the enemy to steal our joy. The psalmist says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. We just sat down and we cried about the miserable state that we found ourselves in. We sat down by the river in Babylon and we just wept. Meeting by the river, that's where you'd meet for worship customarily. Throughout the history of Israel, you would meet by the river for worship. Even in the New Testament time, when you found a city that didn't have enough Jewish men to constitute a synagogue presence, they were still meeting by the river. When Paul meets Lydia, the seller of purple from the city of Thyatira in the book of Acts, she is with the Jewish women down by the river worshiping and praising God. You, you, you meet by the river for worship. So what the psalmist says is that while we were in Babylon, when we would have otherwise been worshiping, we were mourning the condition that we found ourselves in. The enemy, in carrying us away, had to a great degree stolen our joy. Can I, can I tell you, among the sins that trouble me for their existence within Christendom, the, the sin of almost constant negativity concerns me as much as, as any other. There is a pessimism these days about the people of God that is, in my mind, unexplainable. We have been bought by the blood of the only begotten Son of God. We have been given a promise that no matter what happens to us in the here and now, that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us through Christ Jesus. And yet we can be some of the most mealy-mouthed people you have ever heard in your life. And in some ways, it's just human nature. We sort of gravitate to that. I found that in my preaching, if, if I can find an example that I can just really blow up, I tend to, that tends to be a more effective thing for me. It comes more smoothly or more natural for me if I've got kind of a natural foal for the point that I'm trying to make. We just sort of drift that way. 
We have a sports message board mentality about most of life. We all have the ability to find a problem for every solution. And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that we ought to just sort of meander through life blindly as though nothing was wrong around us. There, there is a time for mourning and a time for dancing, Solomon said. But there ought to be a degree of optimism about us that if the sun falls from the sky, Christ is on the throne. That no matter what befalls us today or the next day, that there is a brighter day that awaits us in Jesus. The enemy seeks to steal the joy of, of God's people. Admittedly, there is a time to grieve the perceived distance between ourselves and God. We are faced in the here and now with walking by faith and not by sight in this strange pilgrimage, and that can be a very, very challenging thing. If, if we don't feel or sense a heaviness about the presence of sin around us, there, there's something that's out of tune or out of step about that as well. But God in heaven knows there's a place for joy in the midst of the people of God. There's a second thing in verses 2 through 4. One through three here sort of string together. The enemy seeks to steal our joy, but, but furthermore, in verses two through four, the enemy seeks to take our song. In the absence of joy, it's difficult to sing. Verses two and following say, it was there by the rivers when we sat down to weep that we hung up our harps. We stopped playing. We hung them on the poplar trees. For our captors there ask us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then the psalmist asks, how can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soul? It's kind of difficult because of the language of verses 2 through 4 to determine exactly what the psalmist is saying has caused them to stop their singing. It's one of two things. Either they have been provoked or mocked because of the content of their songs, so they stop singing. Or, or, there, or there's something else we'll get to in just a moment. So, so they say, sing your songs. Songs which would have been about the victory that they enjoyed under the kingship of God. Songs about redemption. Songs about provision. Songs about the promised land. Songs about the beauty of Zion, the goodness of God. And laughing at them in their desperate state. The Babylonians would say, sing your songs. Sing your songs for our entertainment. Sing your songs. It, it might have also been here that sing your songs was an encouragement on the part of the Babylonians to just accept your fate. The people of Israel were not entirely certain about singing their songs in a foreign land, because those songs were almost exclusively appropriate to being sung in the promised land. It, it, it may be that they're saying, bring your culture with you. Bring your religious convictions and just settle into your Babylonian existence. This is where you are and this is where you will be. That was Babylonian practice. They would adopt certain aspects of whatever culture they would take over so that the people would assimilate and settle in and they wanted to make a place at the pluralistic table for their new guest here in Babylon. And the people of Israel just could not bear with the idea that this was their fate once and for all. In fact, to have done so would have been to deny the promise of God that this exile would be 
a seasonal experience for them, that once the work of God in judgment had been done against them, that he would deliver them once more and plant them back in the land that flowed with milk and honey. Whatever the case was, whatever the nature, however the nature of the attack, the effort was, was to take their song away, or at least the consequence of their treatment was that they lost the ability to sing. They lost the ability to celebrate the content of the song, the, the content of, of the message for the provocations of those who, who came against them. Now, I'm not a particularly musical people person. In fact, I'm not a musical person at all. I have always appreciated loud music in church, mostly because that ensured that no one around me could hear me sing. I, could free, I can sing freely when the music is at the proper volume. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just not an especially musical person. But there is something about the role, the place that music plays in the life of the people of God that's special in communicating content and doctrine, how our hearts sing to that. I can remember in the early days of walking with the Lord, I was working in the construction world, and the construction world that I worked in was not exactly a wholesome environment, and all of my life's experience up until that point had been a less than wholesome experience. Uh, the music and the memories and the movies of my, of my childhood and teenage years uh, were, were burned in my mind, and they were not the kind of things that you needed to meditate on much if you were trying to have a wholesome experience, a walk with Christ. And I can remember being on the job and bad things happening or someone saying something that shouldn't have been said or a radio playing and reminding me of a memory or a moment or a song to which the lyrics were inappropriate and running over in my mind the only hymn that I knew. There's victory in Jesus. That was the only hymn I knew. I've been saved six months, you know. And, and, and just remembering and being encouraged at how he sought me and he bought me by his redeeming blood. The preciousness of, of those truths communicated in a way that you would never guess would connect with a 19-year-old boy, but they soothed my soul. And in the face of the taunts and the challenges of living and working in that environment, it lifted my spirit. And it was God's means of, of holding me close. No, no matter what the hardship or the difficulty is, is before you, in, in Christ we have reason to sing. We needn't hang our harps in the poplar trees and give up our song for the enemy's opposition. Thirdly, the enemy seeks to control our thoughts. Verses 5 and 6 are statements of determination on the part of the psalmist. He says in verse 5, If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. This is a declaration of determination. I will not forget, the psalmist says. I will not forget. Our meditations are not to be fixed on the city of Jerusalem, but on the God of Israel. And, and, and in this strange pilgrim journey we find ourselves on, when the, when the difficult days come, there, there has to be a determination within us that we will not forget 
what God has done for us. I have found that most of the work of preaching is not about communicating new information. It's about reminding people of what they already know in the gospel. In fact, most of the New Testament is not about the communication of new information. It's about reminding the people of God of what they already know in the gospel. Peter says explicitly, I'm writing these things to remind you of certain gospel principles. When James says to the church in dispersion, you, you need to be doers of the word and not hearers only, in its context, what James is saying to them is, you need to start doing what you already know you need to do. I'm not really wrestling with understanding some new commands in the Bible today, but I am really wrestling with implementing the commands I'm already aware of. Here the psalmist says, I will not forget, I will not allow that my thoughts be concentrated exclusively on the condition of the world around me, the difficulty of my circumstances, my meditation, the meditation of my heart will be fixed on the God of Israel and his provision for me. I will not forget. I will not forget. Now, the enemy in our day operates much differently than the Babylonian uh, people did in, in their opposition to the people of Israel. There was a, a very real, a, a visible enemy that, that taunted them, that, that, that captured their thoughts, that intimidated them in, in great ways. But our enemy is far more clever than we are. He's concocted all sorts of ways of infiltrating our, our thoughts, our every moment. The world around us has almost constant access to our thought patterns. Some of the things that have been the greatest blessing to us, the greatest benefits to us, have made us more and more vulnerable to this kind of invasion. I, I, I have this year, for the first time, been doing my read the Bible through in a year plan through my smartphone, which is a, a remarkable gift but an incredible curse at the same time, you know? You you know that Apple logo is really a knock at original sin. It's an apple with the bite taken out, which is, I don't know if ironic is the word, um, but it certainly speaks to the power and and the influence that that our smart devices have in our hands. And you find yourself reading the scripture, and, and and then you get... 17 Facebook messages, you know what I mean? It's really not a good idea to do what your pastor's doing and do your read the Bible through in a year plan on your smart device. There will always and eternally be distractions. We have in our day and age the 24-hour news cycle. Can I just tell you, it's my conviction, Christians would be much better off if we watched a lot less cable news. We just would. And, and, and to somehow anchor our thought life in the preciousness of the gospel and the glory of God's only Son. The enemy seeks to steal our joy. The enemy seeks to take our song. The enemy seeks to control our thoughts. Fourthly, the enemy delights in our destruction. Most everything that's said in Psalm 137 is pretty straightforward, but there may be a little mystery for you about what verse 7 is all about. The psalmist says, remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. 
destroy it, destroy it down to its foundation. The Edomites were not an ally to Babylon, at least not an ally that was involved in the invasion of Jerusalem and the destruction of, of Judah. In fact, the Edomites were, in a way, related to the Israelite people. If you go back in your Bibles to the Genesis account and the experiences of Jacob and Esau, you know that Jacob, by deception, uh, received the gift, the birthright, and the blessing. And Esau was, was cursed. There was enmity between Jacob and Esau, and Esau was ultimately sent away. The people of Edom are, are the descendants of Esau. And so they live to the south and the east of the nation of Israel there as, as brothers with a sort of kinship, but the kind of kinship sort of like the people that you hope don't show up at the family reunion, you know? <laughs> and so when the Babylonians invaded the nation of Judah and carried the people of God away captive, Although the Edomites did not participate in the destruction of Jerusalem, they were Babylon's cheerleaders. Tear it down to its foundation. Utterly destroy it. In fact, the smallest book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah, is written as a word of judgment from God to the people of Edom for the joy that they took in the destruction of their brother Israel. The book of Obadiah says that they came into the city of Jerusalem after it had been largely evacuated in exile and they cast lots for what remained in the city. They ran down and they plundered the now empty homes of the Israelite people and they carried away their possessions. They took delight in the destruction of their neighbor Israel. There was always envy on the part of, on the part of Edom toward Israel. They knew the Jacob and Esau story the same way Israelites did. They knew the deception, the, the cunning that Jacob used to steal the birthright. Now, they had lost theological perspective that all of this is happening according to the good providence of God. God's plan is unfolding. But wait, what they knew was the practical, the earthly side. He stole the birthright. Never mind, he enjoyed the favor of God. There's always that enmity always that animus that exists between the two nations. You, you know what hurts perhaps worse than, than when we fail, fall, or are afflicted? It's the people who delight in our failure, in our fall, in our affliction. That's how the enemy operates. And, and now now we, we began by identifying our enemy as not a flesh and blood enemy, but a satanic enemy, powers and principalities of the air. And I just want to say to you this evening, and I don't, I don't know that we do enough talking about the evil nature of Satan and his activity in our life, but I just want you to know he is not out to serve your best interests, that, that he cannot deliver on a single promise that he makes. And, and his temptation, his enticement, always presents in the same way. I was looking yesterday at, at the Genesis account, and, and God, God gives Adam and Eve a command immediately after their creation. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Enjoy the garden. Rule. Have dominion. He tells them to go do this. 
And in answering the command, you will be blessed. In fact, the, the heavy implication there is, if you do this, you will be like me. Y'all tracking with me? God says, do what you've been commanded to do, and in doing so, you'll be like me. That's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Be ye holy, for I am holy. It was always the plan of God that we would be like him in that respect. And then Satan shows up and he says, you want to be like God? Eat this fruit. This is how you do it. If you, if you, if you want to be like God, you've got to disobey God. That sounds a lot like the refrain we're hearing from the culture today. If you truly want to be like God, tender and compassionate and tolerant, understanding, then, then you, what you need to do is you need to disobey what God has said in the past in order to be like God in the present. And he, he's never able to deliver on the promise that he makes. As enticing as it seems, as, as appealing as it is, he's never able to deliver. I'm, I'm telling you, as a brother who labored through some very tumultuous years to find joy and peace and happiness and, and just good in general in every worldly way, that there is no joy, no peace, no satisfaction, no fulfillment, no good in general like we find in faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. The enemy always delights in your destruction. He always does. Fifth and lastly, the enemy himself is doomed to destruction. It may be unsettling what the psalmist says in the last verses of Psalm 137, but it certainly isn't unclear. In verse 8, the Bible says, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who pays you back what you've done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now, most contemporary Bible scholars dance a jig to try to soften what has been said in those verses. Spurgeon said, until you have witnessed your temple destroyed, your children themselves dashed against the rock, then carried away into exile in a strange and foreign land, treated even as the Israelites were treated, we ought not speak with such velvet mouths about Psalm 137. I, I don't, I, my goal is, is not to meet all that out this evening. You reckon with that. This is what the psalmist prays. What he's praying for is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What he describes is the very experience of Israel under the hand of the Babylonian Empire. He says, God, give them back what they have given to us. Now, there's a paradox here. It's, it would be dangerous if you isolate Psalm 137 as the only psalm that informs the way you pray about your enemies. Someone wisely wrote in, in the height of the ISIS uh, movement in the Middle East uh, an article that was titled, Should We Pray for the Conversion of ISIS or for Their Death? The, the answer to that question and the answer that the, the conclusion that the article reached was yes. 
that, that's exactly what we should pray for, for their conversion and for justice to be served. Psalm 137 is here um, as a preface to Psalm 138, which is a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm that, that celebrates the goodness of God. In fact, it begins, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praise before the heavenly beings. I will bow down toward your holy temple. Before Psalm 138 brings us to heights of praise and thanksgiving, there is a remembrance of the low estate of the people of Israel in their Babylonian exile and what they pled to God for. The fall of Babylon was foretold a number of times in the Old Testament. Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Ezekiel, and other prophets spoke of the fall of, of uh, Babylon that was coming, their destruction, and the fate that the Babylonians would experience, and Babylon would fall. Our situation is different. Here's another point of difference between ourselves and the people of Israel. Our enemy has fallen. It's over. The, the victory has been won for us. There are still the entanglements, the skirmishes that we experience, but the victory is ours in Jesus. When I, when I was a, a little boy, my grandparents had a, a place in Fairhope, Alabama, and we would go down and we would go fishing in, in Mobile Bay and often in the Gulf of Mexico. And one of our favorite places to go was Fort Morgan. Some of you maybe have been out to Fort Morgan. Fort Morgan was a Civil War fort. But before it was a Civil War fort, it was Fort Boyer in the War of 1812. The British attacked Fort Boyer on the site of current day Fort Morgan um, prior to their invasion of New Orleans. And, and they were not victorious, and so they moved further to the west. And then after New Orleans, uh, what happened in New Orleans, the British came back to Fort Boyer, Fort Morgan as we know it today, and they actually won. They, they defeated the American forces there at, at, at the fort and uh, began their invasion of, of the South. The problem was that they, they were not aware of the fact that a, a treaty of peace had already been reached. The, the war was over. It was, it was a pointless battle. Now, there was despair for those who served faithfully at Fort Boyer. There was a lot of pessimism about what the future might hold with the British troops now moving inland. But the, the unseen reality was that the victory had been won. Our, our experience can be like that sometimes. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. You get up tomorrow and you fight sin, and maybe you do well for a season, and then you fail, you fall on your face. That is irreversibly our human experience. Until God calls us home and glorifies our mortal state, that will be our experience. But regardless of, of the small skirmishes, maybe even the greater battles that are won and lost on our part as we operate either in the flesh or in the spirit, the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? And there's something about knowing that the victory is ours that empowers us to walk with greater confidence. Brothers and sisters, there is therefore no condemnation for those of us who have found our refuge in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for what God's done for us?